The reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, just because he didn't know what to say, because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we'll start with um, a prayer. Anoint me now, Lord, that I may deliver your message faithfully and fruitfully. Let your word pass from ear to heart from heart to life, so that it accomplishes the purpose for which it is given. Amen. So here we have the endorsement of the real identity and authority of Jesus. The supernatural is breaking in. When we hear a gospel story, we already know the overall narrative of Jesus' birth, death, resurrection. If you imagine it as a jigsaw, and I do like jigsaws, if you imagine it as a jigsaw, then hindsight gives us privileged information. We have the picture on the box to help us piece things together. But for the first followers of Jesus, they only had some of the pieces to go on. I don't know if you've ever tried to do one of those awful jigsaws where the picture on the box isn't the same as the picture you're trying to make. Why would you do that? It can be jolly hard to make sense to begin with. Sometimes not even to begin with, all the way through. Where have they got to in putting their experience of Jesus together into a coherent picture? Well, His ministry in Galilee is well underway, so people are flocking to see him. But who is it that they see? What do they think they're getting? His ministry has raised questions about who Jesus is. There have been healings, driving out evil spirits, feeding crowds. Other pieces of the jigsaw are his teachings. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we heard that Jesus taught in the synagogue with such authority that people were amazed. Can they piece together that to get a clear picture of who Jesus is? Um, Now, each of the three synoptic gospels, to be technical, Matthew, Mark and Luke, um, organise their material to give a particular emphasis on aspects of Jesus's story. So some of the stories they, ach- they choose might be in one or two of the Gospels, 
and the details might vary. But all three of the synoptics include the transfiguration. That's what we just read, the transfiguration. And they place it immediately after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ at Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you need bite-sized revision on what I'm talking about, um, that is where Jesus says, who do people say I am? And gets a few answers. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah. 10 out of 10, correcto, yes, that is who Jesus is. And then we've got to think what that means. But it's also where Jesus starts to talk about his death. The gospel writers seem to want us to hold two things together, two bits of jigsaw, not to fit together. So Jesus is a suffering servant who is humble and obedient even to death. And at the same time, Jesus is the one spoken of in Daniel 7, the son of man coming on clouds of glory, who receives a kingdom that will never end. And it it might be. It is hard for the disciples to work out how those two things fit together. But both of those things are true about Jesus. Both need to be held together in tension. So let's focus on the passage we just heard. What's it telling us about Jesus? How do we get that coherent picture? We start, I can't remember what my slides are. Um, yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's where I am next. Bright white clothing, whiter than Daz or Purcell or Bold could get them. Bright white clothing. The disciples see a physical transformation of Jesus. And those bright white clothes represent purity and holiness. But it's not a kind of magic trick. The point is not the change in Jesus but a change in the disciples and their understanding of who Jesus really is. This is Jesus choosing to reveal his divinity to his closest disciples. His inner being is made apparent, transparent to them. The full truth will only come after his death and resurrection, but these privileged three get a foretaste, an anticipation ahead of time which will only really make sense later. They're getting to see a bit of the picture on the jigsaw lid. And let's not forget the location, the mountain. We don't know which mountain it was definitively, but traditionally it's identified as Mount Tabor. The important thing is that in Hebrew scripture, a mountain is a place of revelation. So in a world where heaven is up there and hell is down there, going up a mountain takes you closer to God. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai or Elijah on Mount Horab, who both encounter God in those high places. Ooh, did I just say Moses and Elijah? Well, isn't that a funny thing? Because... What do the disciples see? They see Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, both of which are fulfilled in Jesus. It's a bit of jigsaw. 
They rep- their presence shows continuity with God's work in the past and legitimates Jesus' mission. So yes, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, and that's two more jigsaw pieces to tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans for our salvation. But there's more. There's more. Both Moses and Elijah were known as the deathless ones, the ones who didn't die, because of the mysterious circumstances that surrounded their death. You can look that up in the Old Testament if you want to. Their presence with Jesus is an anticipation of Jesus' own conquest of death. They also signify the rescuing of God's people from slavery into freedom, that's Moses, and a call to faithfulness, that's Elijah. And they both experienced rejection by and suffering at the hands of God's own people. So they point to the suffering that Jesus has predicted and the glory that he will receive. So it turns out those pieces of the, of the jigs are quite important, aren't they? Yeah? What I'd call the edgy bits. They're good ones. What do we get next then? We get, what do we get? We get a cloud. Again, the cloud is a motif from Hebrew scripture that's probably more impactful if you live in the Mediterranean where it's usually clear blue skies. Doesn't mean a lot to us, does it? Cloud, me. But a cloud in scripture represents the presence of God again. And in the story, it suggests a rather intense experience of God's close presence. I'm sure those of you who've been up mountains will be used to um, being like in the clouds, effectively. It's, you know, you're surrounded, like being in cotton wool. So it's something that we can experience with God, something close and personal. I mentioned this tension between the Messiah having to suffer and die and the act of accomplishing victory over death. That's one tension pulling. There's another tension, and that is the awesome supernatural God, and then the incarnation, Jesus the man, and they're held together. They're both true. They've got to fit together somehow. Our God is cosmic and all-powerful. He made that sunset and the northern lights and the glaciers and everything, and yet he wants a relationship. He wants us to be his children. He's waiting for us with arms wide open to run back to him, secure in his love for us. Now we're coming to the climax of the story. So far the evidence is of their eyes. That's what they're trying to make sense of. But now we get the auditory input, the voice. The most dramatic authentication of Jesus' identity comes with the voice of God in verse 7. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. For us, it's a familiar voice from Jesus' baptism. Jesus is identified in both cases as the son of God. Here, the voice adds the imperative, 
listen to him. So the identity of Jesus isn't just like abstract theology. Yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah. It requires obedient response of the disciples, that's ours, to Jesus' message. As I said earlier, this encounter is about transforming the disciples, changing their perspective. This is part of the process for the disciples of fitting the jigsaw together. They need to hear the voice of God. And as I also said, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the full story of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And we live in a post-resurrection world where Jesus has defeated sin and death. But clearly, we haven't got everything sorted, have we? We still need to hear the voice of God as well. How do we do that? How do we hear the voice of God? Well, we do what they did. We find a quiet place away from distractions. Not necessarily physically up a mountain, although it can be, that's fine. Choose your own space. Choose somewhere quiet, away from distractions, because that makes it easier to listen to the voice of God. If you want to hear him, you need to listen. I mean, also, when we read God's word and take them to heart, we're listening to him, aren't we? Listening to God means following where he leads. It means taking the gospel out with us. That's a challenge. We receive the word of God on a Sunday. How do we take it out into the world when we leave this place, when we come down off the mountain? And I'm getting near the end, don't worry. There's another piece of jigsaw that we have, but at this stage the disciples don't. And that's the fact that we share in the glory revealed in the transfiguration. Its spark is within us. How can that be? This is how Paul wrote about it to the church in Corinth. He said, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As I said at the beginning, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It's in us. Those verses are both a challenge and an encouragement as they call us to be a reflection of God's glory. So I'm going to try and summarize that for you. (laughs) We can say with confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. He came to liberate us from sin and even death itself. His death in Jerusalem and his resurrection accomplished that. Like the disciples, we are called to listen to him and follow him. And the light of his glory dwells within us. Would have been so much shorter if I'd done bullet points, wouldn't it? It took the disciples a while to get the full picture. We have the benefit of hindsight. We've not just got the pieces of the puzzle. We've got the whole picture. So the challenge is, what are we going to do with it? Let me close in prayer.
Almighty Father, God of grace and goodness, awaken us to your glory, that our lives may reflect your radiance, that we may share in your likeness. And in walking the way of Christ, we may reveal your love to the world. Through the same Christ our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.